If you go to the beach in certain parts of the Caribbean right now, there's a good chance you'll encounter massive amounts of seaweed. A particular kind of seaweed, floating in the water, covering parts of the sand, maybe even gathered into neat piles and left somewhere out of the way. Its scientific name is Sargassum, and if you're familiar with it, you probably consider it to be a nuisance. A lot of people do. But there's so much more to the floating alga than that. If we neglect the increasing amounts of sargassum piling up on our shores, it could actually cause a lot of damage to our coastal environment and our health. But if we handle it correctly, it could help us solve a wide range of problems. It might even be a powerful weapon in the fight against climate change. What we know makes all the difference, which means spreading awareness is critical. Thankfully, there's a whole podcast dedicated to this task. It's literally called the Sargassum Podcast, and it features conversations with persons experiencing sargassum in different ways, including researchers, entrepreneurs, and members of coastal communities. By showcasing these different perspectives, the podcast aims to create a better global understanding of the sargassum situation. It's another great example of digital media being used to broaden access to crucial information. We flipped things around on the three hosts of the Sargassum podcast and sat down with each of them to find out more about Sargassum and talk a bit about their efforts to spread awareness. First, we spoke with its originator, Francisca Elmer. She's a research fellow at the School for Field Studies in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and she told us a bit about Sargassum's harmful effects and the potential benefits of finding ways to make use of it. It wasn't until later when somebody came to our island to talk about biofuels that I, I realized, wait, we could use this as a resource. Then we had a conversation with Mar Fernandez Mendez, a postdoctoral researcher at the Geomar Helmholtz Center for Ocean Research in Kiel, Germany. She gave us a better understanding of its biology and showed us its potential to help solve our carbon crisis. Even without us doing anything, algae contribute a great deal to sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. And finally, we discussed the importance of making research not only accessible but inclusive with Robbie Thigpen, Principal Investigator at Marine Conservation Without Borders. He showed us how he's been putting this principle to work in indigenous communities all across Central America. So I have these two different ecological knowledge systems that exist in me without conflict. Why can't I make a book like that? So let's have a look at how effective science communication can help us see all the different sides to a sargassum dilemma in this episode of Caesar Voices. Those of us living in the Caribbean definitely know there's been a seaweed problem on our beaches for a while now. But it's become a much bigger problem than most of us regular folks probably realize. Since 2011, the amount of sargassum in the Atlantic has increased dramatically. It currently forms a 5,000-mile mass from Africa to the Caribbean. It is estimated to weigh 22 million tons. That certainly sounds massive, but it's a somewhat arbitrary measure for the majority of us. As a biological ecologist, however, Francisca Elmer is only too clear on what this massive increase could mean for our coasts. Francisco first noticed Sargassum's more harmful effects while studying coastal ecosystems in the Turks and Caicos Islands. 
Yes, so sargassum, when it's out in the open sea, it's an amazing ecosystem. But when it's piling up in large masses on beaches, it can be a problem. And it can be a ecological problem. Um, I myself have seen in Turks and Caicos Islands um, seagrass beds that are just completely gone. So you see the stumps of the seagrass for meters and meters off the coast until you finally hit the healthy seagrass again. And in some bays as well, um, if the sargassum makes these um, blankets over the bay because it cannot get on the coast um, enough of it, that's when you get anoxic conditions and you get fish dying and other animals dying and turtles are, if there's any turtles in there as well. So from an ecological standpoint, you really want to avoid those things because it's really bad for your near shore underwater environments. It's really bad for us too. And I don't just mean that in the obvious long-term sense implied just now. So there's different gases which, which are released when the sargassum is decomposing. And that starts about 48 hours after it beaches. So you have to really remove it fast for this not to happen. And one of the gases is hydrogen sulfide, which you can smell and smells really bad, like rotten eggs. But the other gases are equally bad, but you cannot smell them. And it can lead to health problems. So if you are in an area where you can smell it, and this can be kilometers away from the sargassum because the wind can bring it, um, you may have irritation of your eyes and noses and throat, but it can also get worse and you have a headache or you actually have nausea and dizziness. And if you have it for a very long time, there's also um, chronic effects that aren't very well studied yet. But some people in Martinique are getting asthma and other things wow. since the sargassum arrived. So this is something we don't talk very often about. We always hear about the impacts on tourism. But this is a really big impact for local people as well. And people should be aware that it's not only a bad smell, but it's, it's likely affecting your health. Oh, and, and by the way, you can't just toss this stuff anywhere you want. One important issue that we have right now with sargassum is as we remove it from the beaches we generally just put it somewhere like we make a big pile of sargassum somewhere where um, it's convenient where it maybe is away from people um, but that sargassum often decomposes and it has arsenic in it sometimes and heavy metals but also the hydrogen sulfide and if you put that in the wrong place, which has happened on some islands and in Mexico, I think as well, it can leach into your groundwater. So we literally have tons of sargassum washing up on our shores each day with no sustainable method of disposal. You can probably see the predicament there. For some people though, these kinds of problems can present fertile ground for innovation. For instance, there's people doing research on how to make methane out of it, which okay. you then can use to make electricity, but also you could use it for cooking, like the cooking gas, that type of stuff. However, when they were researching it, they found out that the you have a theoretical yield of what you should get out of the sargassum in terms of methane. But then when you actually do it, you get a lot less because apparently there's some components in the sargassum that are inhibiting 
methane to be made, but it could be turned into a positive thing. So there's a, a laboratory and at the University of Greenwich, which is researching to find out which components are doing that. And you could take out those components first, right. then you get a higher methane yield and you could make it work as a, as a biogas. And those components you could use as animal feed um, for cows and other animals so that when they, they produce less methane, um, which, you know, we know that meth methane production by cows is, is a huge driver of climate change. Right, yes. So it could be a win-win if we find out these components. And it's a win we desperately need, since funding sargassum removal is its own problem entirely. Yeah, to remove sargassum from from Caribbean beaches, and just so the ones that the one that is removed, there's lots of beaches that don't have sargassum removed. It costs the Caribbean about 120 millions per season or per year. So that's a lot of extra money that either hotels or governments have to put in. And one of the reasons why we are looking for uses and valorization and making products out of it is to to make up for that cost, to to turn this into something that can offset those costs so that it will not cost every year extra money to get rid of the sargassum, but you may can even make some money with it. As Sargassum's money-making potential becomes clearer, we might even see an increase in demand from the private sector, which could come with much-needed additional support for cleanup efforts. There's different people who make products, but there's still lots and lots of Sargassum to go around. But potentially, once the Sargassum that is already picked up is all used, then maybe they start picking it up on other beaches or in front of other beaches before it lands. And... Those beaches are normally the more natural beaches that maybe should also be cleaned because there's turtles nesting or something else, but there's just no money incentive to clean them to right clean now. Up, right. Yeah, but if there's products, maybe there is a money incentive to clean those beaches too. Luckily, sargassum is a seaweed, so it's actually really easy to grow. Yeah. So if at any time there isn't enough sargassum to make the products, you could always start a, a farm like a people farm. do with sea moss and start growing the sargassum to make the products and, you know, grow it in a way it doesn't come to the beaches. So it would, it would not be an impact anymore. It would just be for product. What started as an invading threat could become an abundant resource with the power to boost economies and change lives, which, quite frankly, is amazing. But this isn't immediately apparent to most people. Yeah, most locals see it as a nuisance, depending on what their work is. Some people will be working every day for hours and hours removing it. So these people, you know, they will have a perception of sargassum. Maybe they're happy they got a job because of it, but they also really are aware of the problem. Other people, you know, they may just see it when they go to the beach and for them it's a, a smaller um, nuisance. But what I've seen in South Caicos, in the Turks and Caicos Islands, when we did um, some interviews with locals about how they feel about using it as a resource, that most, of, most people didn't think about it as a resource 
before we brought that up. They saw it as a problem, they saw it as a nuisance, and it never, it didn't occur to them that, oh, this is also biomass that we could use to make products. And it actually took a long while for me to, to think about it that way too. Like first when I saw it, I was like, oh, I want to study how it affects the seagrass because it, it makes um, these carpets and their shadows. So I want to see how our seagrass is affected. It wasn't until later when somebody came to our island to talk about biofuels that I, I realized, wait, we could use this as a resource. There's always a need to raise awareness around issues such as this, especially in heavily impacted areas. But being stuck at home during the 2020 lockdowns led Francisco to figure out a way to broaden the scope. So I had the idea about this podcast last summer Part of it because with COVID, I started listening to more podcasts and I realized how useful they are. They're available to everybody and the episodes are archived. So you can always go back and, and listen to them again or find the ones that interest you. And I also realized that the way the Sargassum Science community adapted to COVID was by hosting webinars about Sargassum. But it was mostly always the same maybe 10 people who got invited to talk at these webinars. We were missing the local perspective. We were missing a lot of the entrepreneurs working on this because there's so many entrepreneurs who have their own scientists or are scientists themselves too, who are working on solutions and who are very far advanced at figuring stuff out. And then there's the whole local perspective, like how are people who actually live there how are they experiencing sargassum? Because right. some of the scientists, they're in England or they're in the US, and they're not the ones who are around sargassum every day. We already have all kinds of people working in different parts of the world, making discoveries and developing ideas around sargassum and its current spread in the Atlantic. By inviting these persons to tell their stories and making those stories easily accessible, the podcast could facilitate the spread of useful ideas. Somebody in Mexico may have found a really good way of making a product or removing sargassum. And a person in Barbados or Jamaica or, or the Dominican Republic or Grenada or wherever has no clue about what that person in Mexico is doing. Yeah, but with sure. the podcast, we want to we wanna enable this exchange so people can know what, what, else, what are other people doing and learn a bit the behind the scene information. Like, how did you actually end up doing your business? Like, how did you start? So that people in other places can be inspired and, and realize, okay, other people were able to do this. Maybe I can do too. Looking for co-hosts within the Sargassum science community, Francisco reached out to Mar Fernandez Mendez, a biological oceanographer interested in the way algae such as sargassum interact with other elements in the environment while trying to survive. For me as a scientist that was interested in this topic, it was the easiest way for me uh, to join her on this adventure and basically get to meet all these people, not only scientists, but entrepreneurs, local communities, um, managers, uh, governors, everyone interested in this one topic that, as you said, it's way deeper than you think at the beginning. You think sargassum is just a floating macroalgae, but actually it touches so many branches of our lifestyle and it touches the society, the economy, the biology, 
everything and now climate change and so i think for me sargassum is like a new new discovery and its potential it's so large that i was uh, super happy to join uh, Fran in this idea and then Robbie of course of creating this podcast that enables us to to talk to so many different uh, people with so many different opinions about this one topic uh, and also bring it out there and that people start learning about about sargassum and what it could do. With Mars background we knew she'd be able to help us better understand sargassum's behavior and capabilities. So what do we know about the sargassum? What do we know right now? We know that it's um I think it's the only macroalgae sargassum fluidans and natans that can spend their entire life floating and they don't need any at any time in their life uh they need to be on a rock attached to a rock. So that's that makes sargassum very very different to most of the other macroalgae that always require some benthic stage um to develop. Of course then that means that the places where sargassum can grow are infinite it can grow in any part of the ocean basically because it can just go floating from one place to another Sargassum's ability to spend its entire life on water is a key factor in its invasion of our coasts Sargassum used to grow in the Sargassum Sea but then with climate change the winds and the currents changed and then sargasso kind of escaped the sargasso sea and made it to the other side of the atlantic and then because the winds kept on changing and the amount of nutrients coming from deeper waters to the surface and also the amount of nutrients coming from the congo river and the amazon river then suddenly this this algae found really nice conditions to grow in the middle of the atlantic and then in the coast of brazil and in the coast of the caribbean And so it started growing 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 like crazy that's also another very interesting feature about sargassum that is that it can grow pretty fast it can double its size uh, within a week mm. and so it started growing really really fast and therefore it created this huge masses of sargassum across the atlantic from west africa to to the caribbean and then due to the winds it also started coming into the caribbean that is kind of a dead end right. and that's how it ended up in all the beaches scientists like mar have been studying the way sargassum utilizes carbon and they've been exploring a very interesting way to take advantage of this process algae are basically like plants on land so they they absorb the co2 from the atmosphere that then of course goes into the water and they take it up right. and they transform it into their their biomass right their bodies and also they excrete part of it as dissolved organic carbon that is also a part of the carbon that gets sequestered into the ocean so even without us doing anything uh, algae contribute uh, a great deal to sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and so what we could do is if we avoid all this sargassum reaching the beaches we collect it before it gets there and we actually compress it and sink it to the deep sea then we are sequ- actively sequestering some of that carbon this could completely change the game by allowing us to solve multiple problems all at once this becomes especially clear when you consider another reason we need to find ways to make use of the sargassum rapidly blooming in our waters because you need to think that when those algae reach the coast and we collect them and dispose them maybe in some landfills right. they decompose again 
and then they release again the carbon that they had sequestered, they release it again to the atmosphere, contributing further to, to climate change. And so if we manage to prevent them from reaching the coast, um, also we prevent all the damage they do to coral reefs and seagrass meadows and mangroves and other coastal ecosystems, and we sink them, we're benefiting those coastal ecosystems, we're protecting coastal societies from the negative impacts of sargassum, and we are fixing carbon with it. And virtually any application we find for sargassum could help us reach these goals. There are already a few companies that have been um, developing around the sargassum issue, and they can already do a lot of things with sargassum. So maybe you would only need to sink part of the sargassum because the rest could be used to do other things like plastic substitutes or fertilizers or ink or paper, many things. So that I think sargassum is both a problem because it reaches the coast and it causes massive damage, but it could be a big part of the solution to mitigate climate change. This adds a whole new layer to sargassum's potential as a resource, and some of us are already catching on. But we really need to pick up the pace if we want to truly take advantage. As far as I know, in the Caribbean, what's been done till now is um, to collect part of the sargassum that gets trapped, for example, in the barriers that they put in front of the beaches. Yeah. Um, and then they collect it, either that one on, on, the, on the sea or the one that has reached already the, the coast. They collect it and they, they do things with it. As I said, uh, there's people doing um, fertilizers with it. Of course, after treatment and after removing the salt and the arsenic, other people have been developing, um, doing concrete to build houses with it. Other people have been doing um, plastic substitutes. And I know there are a few companies that have started looking at the potential of carbon sequestration with sargassum, but I think everything they've done till now is very much small scale, which is good for starters, of course. But if we think about the amounts of carbon that we need to fix to um, reverse um, climate change, as we know it now, then we really need to upscale this and then we need to go out of the Caribbean and go offshore. Yeah. But in the Caribbean, there are already a few things that have been um, started. Also from the Americans and Puerto Rico, I think there there's a couple of uh, companies already looking into this to start with. Given the urgency of the climate fight, Mar and other scientists in regions outside the Caribbean are working to find ways to scale up carbon harvesting efforts. We, and when I mean we, I mean a couple of uh, scientists here in, in Germany and uh, France and the UK, we've been coming up with ideas about how to um, put together two concepts. One is the harvesting of algal biomass to sequester carbon, which is what I've talked until now, and that we can start doing that not only in the Caribbean, but also offshore in the middle of the Atlantic. So this would be one way. Right. But the other one would be um, to actually start farming the sargassum or ranching the sargassum um, and trying to go offshore in the middle of the subtropical jaras where currently not much is happening. We call them the ocean deserts. And they are also kind of enclosed because of the currents, right? So if in there you would bring nutrients from the deep waters to the surface to grow sargassum, and you would harvest it directly at the place where you produce it, so you wouldn't allow it to escape anywhere. Um, then you could start 
upscaling the concept of sequestering carbon through sargassum farming or sargassum production. If we can get this to work, we could potentially upscale almost infinitely, considering the vast amounts of ocean space currently available. You don't need any um, artificial fertilizers. You're using basically the nutrients that are already in the ocean. You just bring them from the deeper waters to the surface. And you're not using any space on land or on the coast that are already um, struggling to fit all the uses we humans have for coastal um, ecosystems, right? We, right? we use them as tourism places. We use them for fishing. We use them for aquaculture. We use them for many other things and therefore there is there is no more space in the coast and again if we go back to the amounts of like the gigatons of carbon that we need to fix um, to go back to pre-industrial levels and have a safe stable climate we cannot do that do that only on the coast so of course we should continue protecting coastal ecosystems and restoring mangroves and seagrasses yes but even if we would fill all the coasts of the planet with this, the coasts are still limited. But the open ocean is vast. We have incredible amounts of space there that we could use um, to fix uh, carbon. When Francisca and Mar approached Robbie Thigpen, a marine conservationist from South Carolina, they were simply looking for a third host, preferably one who was male, in an effort to be inclusive but they quickly found out that Robbie could do far more for the inclusivity factor of the podcast. Just to give you an idea, here's a bit of the opening theme. Hey, brother. Hear me now. Brother, dog. Know me. Understand. Okay, that wasn't Robbie you heard singing there. It's a singer by the name of Drizzle Roadrunner. He's originally from Belize, which is where Robbie met him. Yeah, yeah, he grew up in Belize City. Now he's living in Rotan. But yeah, I, I watch him grow up, you know. And uh, now he's a really great guy, really great guy. Darson Bennett's his name, his actual name. And um, if you look in our, our guest archive at the bottom of this talk there, you'll see a little bit of information. I'll see you there. Robbie was working as an intern for local fishermen at the time, all in an effort to study lobster fisheries. That's really where my project started with Belize. And you know, it accidentally started there. The project he's talking about is called Treasures of the Caribbean. It's a series of educational resources designed to serve indigenous communities. He was inspired to start the project while spending time with the children of the fishing communities he served. To start with, I couldn't figure out why I wasn't able to help him with the homework. But as I began to learn the Creole, I did, you know, you know, for example, right now, that means something very different in English, you know. Yeah. And um, I heard the teachers teaching using English book written in English and she was using Creole to teach. And then, but when I heard the teacher teaching in Creole, I, you know, things began to click. And, ah, that's the problem. And uh, they're not, you know, learning this English. And the only homework they had problems with, I started realizing, was the homework that was written in English. These children were very intelligent, but they're facing a steep hurdle no one should have to consider at their age. Here in, in, in uh, or in Belize or there, I guess, you know, a child who grows up speaking one language in their house. The Patois, or in Creole and Belize, or Maya and Yucateco, or Maya Mopan, or Maya Quechi, or Garifuna, all of those languages, you know, mm. depends on who you are, right, and what word, language you grow up. Society, yeah. yeah. And things are changing slow, 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 slow. But there was a time when if you you, you said those words at school, at home, you, you'd already, you've already learned the name of the, the, uh, 
the the birds, the trees around you, the your, the kitchen, all the all the words of the house. You know, you've already learned that. Uh, but when you go to school, you got to you 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 can't you got to say thank you. Yeah. You can't say thanks. Yeah. You can't say Dios botic. You got to say gracias. Right. And um, and so these children are starting not at the same place other children are starting. Most of us are first introduced to the language of wider society through our interactions with adults in our home environment. This helps to ease our digestion of the increasingly complex concepts fed to us at school because, you know, the languages match right from the beginning. Now imagine if that weren't the case. Here in the States, you can't start learning a second language, I think, until you're in the seventh grade. And you know, uh, that'd be uh, first form, I guess. Right, right, yeah. And, um, and here, in a lot of places throughout Mesoamerica and there, they expect people to start learning another, the next language as soon as they get first grade. And, uh, and I, you know, there's, there's got to be a better way. And so that's, that's what we're doing. We're trying to create this biocultural curriculum where, you know, we're, you know it, where it resonates with our audience. Robbie and his organization, Marine Conservation Without Borders, have been working with indigenous communities and local organizations to create textbooks and other educational materials that can do far more than merely interpret scientific information. What I did is I've been developing methods to seamlessly combine indigenous ecological and Creole, you know, but indigenous ecological knowledge systems with uh, Western science. So that these people, are my, my friends, my family, you know, they, they, they will recognize their ecological knowledge in the materials and see it treated as equal to Western science. Whereas my uh, all my biology cohorts, they see it and for them, it's indistinguishable from a modern science curriculum. But um, because they, they don't see this cultural stuff in there, but the, the people I work with do. Because ecology is culture, you know, and because uh, you can't tell me them fishermen right there at White House. They tell you everything about the sea. They just talk about it different. You know, I was raised here in the low country of South Carolina, along the swamps and estuaries and rivers and, and the Atlantic Ocean. So I know that this kind of ecological knowledge system has value and is important and all. And, you know, of course, I studied at university, too. So I have these two different ecological knowledge systems that exist in me without conflict. Why can't I make a book like that? The Treasure of the Caribbean project sets out primarily to address important educational barriers for indigenous communities, but it also demonstrates the real value of indigenous ecological knowledge systems. These people that I work with, the fishermen in White House, for example, or the uh, or Celestune in, in Yucatan or uh, Sartanea or Kikauka or wherever, they have a scientific identity or at least an ecological identity already they have that and all and the way a lot of this stuff is portrayed now is just shuts that out they feel like they, the textbooks they got was made for somebody else they just gave it to them yeah but now when these people see my book they know that was for them they, they you know i wrote a i created a science book that um doesn't just exercise the mind it speaks to the heart when you speak to robbie you can really tell that he cares about this project and he and his team have managed to keep the lights on despite facing funding issues and other problems that can usually stop a young project in its tracks. But they've done far more than just persevere. We've just got to a place where we're doing a lot better. We're about to have books from 
Campeche, all the way down to the southern coast of Nicaragua. We got the book in Guayu and Colombia. We got a couple other ones too, but that's an unbroken line of all the seafaring communities of the Western Caribbean there. So we've demonstrated some stuff now, you know, and we're about to start working on a larger collection for uh, hopefully we'll be testing that COVID and funding allows. We'll be testing that materials, those materials in early 2022. These textbooks are designed to transmit knowledge using the voices of the people who use them. But as Robbie was recently reminded, they can potentially serve to preserve some of these voices as well. The Ulwa people, we just finished that book last week. Um, they live in one community in, um, in Nicaragua called Carawala. One of the women there knew an anthropologist that knows me and she contacted me. And she told me, she said, Robbie, uh, uh, we need one of your books so our children don't forget who we are. There's less than, in, in, there's less than 200, in 2005, there were less than 250 people that spoke this language. So this particular book, the same book as all the rest, but this particular book can be, we hope that we will be able to use that as a language revitalization project, help not to, to because uh, they, they're in, they, that language is in trouble. And so we hope we can help protect that language and culture. But, but these materials do that in other places. They're just, you know, the oil just a little bit further down the path of, of, towards the edge of the cliff. Maybe, and we, we're hoping we'll help bring them back. And um, so I, I, I programmed, um, I designed these materials to do multiple secondary and tertiary, you know, uh, benefits. And, and, and those are just two of them. Above all, the project has the power to introduce important voices and create new channels for transmitting crucial information. One of the things that I, 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 I like this to do is I want to, you know, to, in a scientific way, demonstrate to the scientific community what these people know is important and it's real and you recognize it as science, yeah. you know, and um, I think that'll help people listen. Additionally, if we can get this kind of, these kind of materials in every you know, school in the Absolutely. Great Caribbean Basin in Mesoamerica. Think about how e much easier it'll be in the future to to do excuse me to do conservation and resource management when everybody understands what each other are talking about. Now, a lot of times, that somebody will pass a fisheries law or whatever and don't explain why, and people say, "But you want my children to go hungry." You know, if I do that, how am I going to pay my school fees? Exactly. You know, and um, those things are just too often ignored. Robbie's work demonstrates a commitment to clear, open communication, which makes him a great fit for this Sargassum podcast. The onus is upon the biologist, the scientist, or whatever, to communicate clearly to the public. It's not the public's responsibility to, to understand the scientist. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, famous astrophysicist here in the States and all. If I was to go to a conference where he was speaking, I like to talk to him out in the hall, have a beer or something and chat. I wouldn't go into his talk. I wouldn't know what he was talking. I wouldn't understand what he was talking about. Yeah. But uh, he'd be a, he'd be a great person to hang out with. But the thing about it is when you see him on TV and stuff and talking and you see some YouTube videos, you understand exactly what he's talking about because he communicates clearly. To, he's a very good science communicator to the public. Clear communication can transmit important ideas, which have the power to completely change circumstances, while open access ensures that critical conversations are conducted in the open and that everyone is allowed to join in.
Sargassum might be causing problems right now, but it could actually help solve many of our problems, even some as serious as climate change, if we come together and pool our knowledge. As long as everyone's allowed a real seat at the table. Anyway, that's all we have for you on this episode of Caesar Voices. We'd like to thank the hosts of the Sargassum podcast for the time they've spent giving us a scoop on Sargassum. We've dropped links in the description, so please go and check out their content. It might change your life. Of course, we'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Caesar Voices podcast. If you like what you've been hearing so far, please feel free to give us a rating wherever you're listening. We'd also like to remind you that you can visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations to lend your financial support or join our monthly donor club on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content or even be featured in an episode of our podcast. Just click the links in the description. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, click on our corporate link to learn more. 